All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. And I am back after a few weeks off. Do not worry. I am back for football, getting geared up for a great football season coming up. And in a couple minutes, I'm going to disclose my Super Bowl bubble, who I think going into the season has a chance of winning the Super Bowl. But before I get to that, I've got something that I have to talk about. Just how bonkers it was, how weird it was, how interesting it was. And that is the Monty Teo documentary on Netflix. And I'm sure everybody is familiar with the story. So quick recap, Monte Teo, one of the best players in college football, develops a relationship, online relationship with a then dude who he's now transitioned to a female. But when he first met, it was a dude posing as a female, taking Facebook pictures from another girl on the internet, was able to distort his voice to sound like a female voice and was able to trick Teo into basically being his boyfriend without ever meeting. And eventually Deadspin puts the pieces together and was like, wait a minute, this person doesn't actually exist. And then people, um, some of the reaction was like, wait, did Teo make up this girlfriend who then quote unquote passed away? And did Teo make this up to get sympathy points in the Heisman voting, all that stuff, bunch of rumors going around. But so I'm watching this and it happened 10 years ago. I was, I think like a senior in high school, it was 2013. And so I'm watching this documentary a couple of nights ago and you know, it was only 10 years ago. I was in high school. So I remember most of what happened, basically 95% of what happened. And then I'm watching this documentary and they are positioning Lene, who was the hoaxer. They are positioning Lene as like the hero of this whole situation. And they would have shots of her like dancing in the sunlight with like rays of sun beating against her face and her her smiling. And she showed zero remorse for, oh, I don't know, ruining this guy's life for two years. And then you learn the documentary, he had anxiety problems for many years to come. He was the butt of every single joke. And it just has her like laughing and smiling and being like, yeah, this was like a a learning experience for me. I was just building character and and stuff like that. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? I had to pause it. I was like, there's no way, like I must've gotten characters and names mixed up, paused it, rewound. And I was like, no, this is, this is really it. This is Lene. And it's like, she's the hero of the story. And they almost started to phrase it as if it wasn't her fault. It was like the media and like social media and Twitter's reaction to it. It was that was the main offender of this case. It was not Lene, the main hoaxer. And it's like, think if there's some YouTube skit, some prankster is like, hey, there, there's, here's a sidewalk and we're going to pour, you know, a bunch of like slippery, wet material on this piece of sidewalk and we're going to watch people walk and fall down and hit their head. So they do the prank, they're filming it, and then they film the people who are walking past these people that have slipped on the sidewalk and they're kind of looking in and kind of laughing at the people that have fallen. It's like looking at that situation and saying, Hey, the people that walked and were like laughing at the person that fell, they're the main offenders. It's not the people that I don't know, caused the whole situation to happen. 
it's not their fault. And so that, that was the angle of the documentary. It was just like borderline, like funny, like, wait, what? I mean, I was questioning myself. I had to take a, a long look in the mirror. It was like, am I missing something? Did something happen that I did not realize? And uh, apparently looking on Twitter, uh, a lot of other people have the same line of thinking. The second part of it, so Deadspin breaks the article, a guy named Tim Burke, who you've probably seen on Twitter. He posts, you know, all the videos. I've always wondered, like, how do people get like the the first video? Like, it's easy to share a video on Twitter, but how does the first person like crop it, get it out? You know, it's on TV. How do they get it onto the computer and then onto Twitter? This guy's got like 30 computer screens and then you kind of like screen record those screens and then you're able to clip it really quickly, scroll back. And so he's got, he's like, you've probably seen him because he, he has a bunch of videos of broadcasts and all this different stuff, but he was working at Deadspin and was the guy that broke the initial story, put all the dots together, pretty impressive work. But he was like, you know, I, I didn't write this article to expose Monty Teo. I just wrote it because I saw some in, inconsistencies in the way ESPN reported it, CBS, Sports Illustrated. You know, some people were saying, she died this month and other people were saying she died before his grandmother died. It's like, in what world could you write an article about a star football player having a fake girlfriend and then her fake dying and then him telling people about it, Heisman Trophy ceremony? In what world is the story inaccuracies of when this person died? And so here's trying to spin it as if, you know, I, I didn't mess anything up. I didn't screw over Monty Teo. And I wouldn't even be mad if he was like, yeah, this was the story is about Teo. It's like if you're a journalist and you find out something is false or something you find, you know, that's what they're supposed to do is find some sort of truth in a situation, do some research, and then provide what you have found based on facts. And so I'm completely fine with publishing that article. But he was trying to say, no, 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 it, this was a, a sports media study. The Monte Teo thing was secondary. I was like, what are you talking about? So there's, those are just the two kind of out there things during this documentary that uh, were pretty funny. But overall, it was a really good documentary. It's only, I think it's two parts, each is one hour, and it flies by, and it really jogs a bunch of your memories about what happened. And from what I remember, you know, people weren't like mad at Teo saying, hey, you did this for sympathy points, you made up this girlfriend, and then she died. And then you said she died to, to you know, get into the Heisman ceremony and have everyone feel bad for you. People were just making fun of him because, hey, dude, you had, you just got, you know, hoaxed. And how does he not have any friend? Like, imagine if you were in college and you're like, yeah, I've got this girlfriend. You know, here's a picture of her. We actually haven't really met before. And then your, your friends would meet you like, what? You're dating someone that hasn't, like, can you imagine, especially in like a, a college football locker room? You're like, yeah, I've got this girlfriend we've never met. I just feel like, you know, your friends would be like, dude, what's going on? And I guess that didn't happen with uh, Teo and he ultimately got duped and you leave it feeling really bad for him because it really affected him um, as it would just about anybody. Okay, let's hop over to some NFL stuff. Okay, so looking through all of these NFL teams doing some prep for who I think can win the Super Bowl, the big thing that jumped out at me was the NFC is wide open. You've got the Rams defending Super Bowl champions. After that, there are a lot of question marks. Aaron Rodgers, no Devontae Adams, distracted offseason. 
49ers, Jimmy G, gone, coming in with Trey Lance. It's kind of a toss-up. Nobody really knows how good Trey Lance is going to be until about halfway through this season. And then after that, it's the Cowboys on and off. There, you know, no Amari Cooper. We've seen the numbers with Dak between Cooper on the field and off, on and off the field. Uh, the rest of the NFC East just feels like 500 for the Eagles. Giants and Redskins still rebuilding. The NFC North outside of the Packers. I mean, maybe the Vikings with the new head coach, but then you've got the Bears who are rebuilding and the Lions who are rebuilding. NFC South. The Saints are in transition. Falcons are in transition. Panthers, question mark, at quarterback. And so the NFC is really wide open. So in my Super Bowl bubble, you know, the main, I've commandeered a new theory. And it's, say the first couple of points about a team in their offseason. And if it would make sense at the end of the season that they would win a Super Bowl. So for example, last year, the Rams win the Super Bowl. What would have been the first things we, we said about the Rams at the beginning of the season? They brought in Matt Stafford, one of the most talented quarterbacks, joining one of the most offensively gifted head coaches. And they've got star defensive players, and they ended up bringing in a receiver in Odell Beckham. But before that, they had a ton of weapons. Those would be the first couple notes. The year before that, Buccaneers win it. What would we have said about them? Tom Brady talented defense, and oh yeah, they've probably got three of the best 12, 15 receivers in the league. Oh yeah, and Gronkowski and a great defensive coordinator in Todd Bowles. And so looking back on it, it kind of makes sense when you take the top couple things from a team, top storyline or what's going on, it makes sense why teams previously have won the Super Bowl. So now, instead of looking back on it, let's start in the preseason and do it. First, I'm going to rule out a few teams. The Green Bay Packers. What are their top storylines? We lost the one receiver Aaron Rodgers really trusts. Second team, the Patriots. Who's calling the plays? Who are the offensive weapons? Who have you added on defense that could help stop the Bills when they ran and threw the ball down the Patriots' throat? Next team, Cleveland Browns. Deshaun Watson mess. There's no way the Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl. Last one, Arizona Cardinals. Kyler Murray, we've got a guy coming into the season. We're not sure he watches film. X them out. So now, those are some kind of contender-type teams. Now let's go to the group of six that I have in my Super Bowl circle. Four in the AFC, two in the NFC start in the AFC. Buffalo Bills. Could have, should have made Super Bowl 13 seconds away from Super Bowl. Josh Allen returning. Added offensive weapons. Gabriel Davis looks to take a leap. Added offensive weapons. Added Von Miller on defense. Same coaching staff in a good spot. Next team, Chiefs. Still have Patrick Mahomes. Still have Andy Reid. So you know you're going to be in it Lost Tyreek Hill, but added Juju Smith, MVS, Sky Moore, some receivers, and drafted some help in the secondary. Next team, Baltimore Ravens. Lamar Jackson back healthy. The whole team in general on defense and on offense. J.K. Dobbins is back. 
Defense is healthy. One of the best coaches in Harbaugh. The Ravens will be back in the mix. Last AFC team, and I left out the Bengals because I don't trust their offensive line, and I think it was a fluke. Yeah, sue me. I think the Bengals making the Super Bowl was a fluke. Chiefs shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have lost to them. I'm not angry about it. Last AFC team, Los Angeles Chargers. Stars on the defensive side that are healthy. They've got Bosa, Derwin James, Khalil Mack. Offensively, still got Herbert, still got Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, solid tight ends. Offensive line, sure it up. They're going to be back in the mix. To the NFC, Los Angeles Rams still have the stars on defense. Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, Stafford on the offensive end. Still have Cooper Cup, arguably the best receiver in the league. And Sean McVay, defending champions. I don't think they're going to repeat, but they're going to be in the mix. And last team, and I actually have a bunch of reasons why they should not be in this list, and it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The top things that come to my mind is you've lost Antonio Brown. You've got Godwin coming off a knee surgery. Mike Evans getting older. Lost Gronkowski. Defense showed a lot of holes throughout last season in the secondary and a change in head coach, which I think actually will be a positive for Tampa Bay. But despite all of these drawbacks from the team a year ago, they have Tom Brady They have to be in the Super Bowl circle. And so that's it. I only have two teams in the NFC. I don't see any teams coming out of the NFC East, and I don't see any teams coming out of the NFC North. My one dark horse who's not in this, that could be, would be the Minnesota Vikings playing in a subpar NFC North. Could see them getting to an 11-6 or 12-5, have a home playoff game, Kirk Cousin with with a more offensively-minded head coach. Great weapons. Jefferson's a top-five receiver. Dalvin Cook. I think that offense is going to be more explosive with an offensive head coach and no longer Mike Zimmer, who's just a defensive maniac who apparently they didn't even really like each other. So that's it. That is my Super Bowl circle. Only six teams. So I'll keep this list in the back of my brain throughout the season see how it turns out that's it for today's episode thank you everybody for listening and i'll be back in just a few days as we gear up for the fall and football season see ya